Well, it certainly is good to see you all here. Um, and for those of you that are watching on uh, the live stream, I hope that you can hear me and that's going well. Um, but man, this, is, uh, this has been quite a week, obviously. It's a new experience for all of us. Um, I you know, have never had to wrestle with some of the decisions we've had to wrestle with this week, and I'm sure you haven't either. Um, and so uh, it, it has been a new experience for all of us. And uh, when it comes to approaching Sunday morning like this, um, this is kind of one of the things that I you know, had to wrestle with a little bit is what do you do with the time and the word? Do you address the uh, obvious situation at hand um, and talk about how to respond to a crisis like this and um, you know, even a, a medical uh, pandemic? Um, you know, how, do, how do we, as Christians, how do we think that through? How have Christians responded to that sort of thing over the centuries? Because that's definitely something that believers have had to wrestle with. Um, that's one approach, and I know a lot of guys are doing that uh, as they preach today, uh, even if they're not gathering for their worship service. If they're doing a live stream, they're, they're handling it that way, and that is a completely fine approach to it. Um, the other approach you can take through it, uh, through something like this, is uh, something that we really appreciated uh, about our time in California at John MacArthur's church. Um, no matter what was going on in the culture, we always knew that we could go into church on Sunday morning and... John was going to open up the next text, and we were just going to continue on through the Bible. And that built confidence in us in the Word. And I think what you'll see this morning is when we do that, we see how applicable the Bible is to every situation we face in life. Certainly, we could draw principles out and directly address the, the coronavirus and the pandemic and how we're responding to that. But you'll see this morning that whatever text of Scripture you're in is applicable and helpful and fruitful in our lives. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go to God's Word in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to continue right on in our study of the book of Ephesians. So uh, I believe I have a PowerPoint presentation. There it is. Good. Well, as you're opening up to Ephesians 6, I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, maybe you've even heard it this week, know your enemy. It's almost a cliche now. It's something that we, we say and um, maybe has lost some of the meaning uh, of the phrase in some ways. Uh, but you hear that all the time about any sort of competition or any combat that anyone is entering into. You've got to know your enemy. But I'd be, I'd be surprised if many of us know where that phrase comes from and where we originally find that phrase. Uh, it actually comes from a book that was written 500 years before Christ came to earth. And it was a book that was written in China by a military leader named Sun Tzu. The book, I'm sure you've heard of it, is called The Art of War, which is a great title for a book. And that has been a massively influential book uh, in the history of military tactics and preparation for military uh, engagement and strategy. And I want to give you the full quote. It comes at the end of the third chapter, and the third chapter is on strategy in attacking your enemy, right? And so here's the full quote, and I'll read this to you. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Now, I don't think any of us in here 
will ever be in the position of commanding an army of soldiers and having to decide on particular military tactics. But I do think the ideas here spill over into many arenas in life and certainly into the spiritual realm. It is vital that we know who we are, we know ourselves, and it's vital that we know the enemy and we're aware of the enemy. And I would say, in fact, that those two concepts, know yourself and know your enemy, are really our first two tactics in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Um, Last week we started here, we're going to give you four tactics necessary to resist our spiritual enemy with God's strength. The first one of those here, I think you could say, is to know yourself. Rely on God's power at work in you. The reality is that when you do understand yourself to some extent, the most basic and most important thing that you and I need to understand is that we cannot stand firm on our own. We don't have the ability to engage any enemies in our own strength and our own power. And that's why verse 10 in Ephesians 6 is so important. Let me read that to you. This is the verse that we spent all week last weekend. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now what Paul's doing here is he's pulling together the entire argument of the book of Ephesians. And he's giving us a final call to action. He's motivating us to get into the game. And what he's saying in this verse is you and I are to be strengthened, motivated. We're to have the capability and ability to engage, to You'll see today to stand firm by our union with Christ. So we're strengthened by our union with Christ and we're strengthened by all of the benefits that you and I receive by the grace of God that we have through him. It's his mighty power that is at work in us. We don't stand on our own power. Now, typically, I know when we study or when we think about or even read the passage here on the armor of God, it's very easy to jump over this verse. It's almost like an introductory title to the section, and so we sort of skip over it and ignore the truths that are found here. But this verse sets the tone for the entire passage. You can't understand and appropriate the armor until you come to grips with the reality in verse 10 that you can't stand on your own, that we have to rely on the strength and the power of God. It's not our ability to defeat sin. It's not our strength. It's not our moral fortitude that gets us through. It's the strength that comes from our union with Christ and from our relationship with him. And part of that strengthening is recognizing that we need him and knowing ourselves to the point where we don't rely on ourselves. And so that's the, the first tactic that we have to utilize that's necessary for our engagement with the enemy, for resisting the enemy. But the second one is found in verses 11 to 13, and this is where we're going to be today. And this tactic is that we do have to know our enemy. That is a necessary part of this fight. You can see it on the screen here. Recognize and resist our enemy. Now those two words kind of convenient there that I found two R words to match up here for the second, uh, second tactic, but to recognize and resist both of these concepts, I think you're going to see throughout verses 11 through 13. So he describes our enemy, 
So we have to recognize our enemy, and then he gives us the posture that we're supposed to take in the battle. And it's a posture of standing. It's a posture of resistance. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. So if the underlying key in this passage is to be strengthened in the Lord through our relationship with Christ, then verse 11 gives us a little bit more detail on how that strengthening happens. So we're strengthened in the Lord, and now he gives us a command, and he says to put on the whole armor, put on the armor of God. And you notice the command here, to put on. Now, if you've been with us in the book of Ephesians, you remember that we've seen that command before. That is a key element of our growth and our development in the Christian life. I want you to flip back in the book of Ephesians to chapter 4, verses 20 to 24. This is the same language that we just saw to put on the whole armor of God. It's the same language that's used in chapter 4 and verse 24. But let me give you a little bit of context and read verses 20 to 24. Here Paul's giving us kind of the three key aspects of growth in Christ. We put off, we renew, and we put on. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and, and it's the same word here, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." You put off the old man with his corrupt, deceitful desires. Your mind is renewed by the truths of Scripture and the benefits that we have in Christ. And then we put on the new man. We begin to resemble Christ. Now in chapter 6, putting on the whole armor of God is basically another way of saying to put on the new self. It's the same terminology. It's another way of saying that our lives must no longer conform to the old way of living. and We must put on a new pattern of life. Now, when we get to verse 14 through 17, probably next week, we'll see the specifics of the armor that God supplies. And we'll go into more detail on those. Uh, But for now, it's enough to know that we are to put on the armor. And that's what Paul is telling us here. And specifically, we're to put on the armor of God. It's his armor. It's what he provides and he supplies to us. It's not our own. So all last week, we talked about how we must rely on God's strength. We trust him. We trust the benefits that he has or that we have in him. And now, in verse 11, Paul is giving us a command. He's saying, put on the whole armor of God. And so he's combining and he's bringing together that trust and that reliance on God and the benefits we have in him with a call to act on those benefits. Put on, right? It's a command to us. Put on the whole armor of God. What he's saying here is don't, don't lay back. Don't be casual about this and think that sin is going to be pushed back in your life and that you can just sort of hang out and do nothing and your spiritual enemy will leave you alone and you will be overcome. You have to appropriate and actively recognize the benefits 
that you have. Faith in God's work and in the benefits that we have by grace leads us to action. And so we take that action in order to resist our enemy. Look at what he says in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. There's the command, and here's why. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we utilize the gifts of God, the benefits of grace that we have, in order to be able to stand, to be, to be able to resist, to push back the advances of the enemy, to hold our position. That's why we appropriate these benefits. So what specifically are we to resist? In verse 11, he tells us that you may be able to stand or to resist against the schemes of the devil. So here's our first introduction in this passage to our specific enemy and to his plans. You're probably, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you're probably familiar with the devil, right? He is a slanderer. I mean, that's what this word means. It means he's a slanderer. He's the father of lies. He deceives. He tricks. And he deceives in order to cause harm. He messes with how we view the world and how we think in order to cause harm in our lives. We saw this reality back in chapter 4. Again, you can flip back there. Chapter 4 and verse 14. The deception of the devil. So in chapter 4, Paul is exhorting us to mature in the faith, to grow up in the faith, right? Through the work of ministry. And here's why he wants us to grow up. Look at verse 14, chapter 4 and verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul's goal for church ministry, the reason we sit under the preaching of the word of God, at least one of the reasons, is so that we won't be deceived by the devil's schemes, by his lies, by his plans. He is a master schemer. He's an expert. I mean, he's the top of the heap. He knows what he is doing. He's a trickster. And he deceives with lies that seem plausible. They seem believable. And that's why we believe them. That's why we give in to them. This past week, I got a phone call, and I answered it, and it was from someone telling me that my iPhone, uh, my Apple ID and password had been stolen or were being hacked, and that I needed to respond quickly and take care of this so that someone would not get my information and my data, my credit card information, my social security number, all of that stuff. There's this moment when you get those calls where you go, oh no, maybe you don't, maybe you recognize them right away, but there's this moment where I go, what if this is real? And then I sort of think it through a little bit and I'm able to recognize it. It seems plausible in some ways. What if it were true that this had happened? But then I recognize it as a scam and just hang up the phone and don't worry about it. So far, there have been no consequences to that. But that's Satan's entire existence. I mean, that's what he spends all of his time doing. It's coming up with tricks and schemes to deceive 
And those schemes seem plausible, and they seem plausible because he's very, very good at it. He's been doing it a long time. There's this great quote by a pastor, R. Kent Hughes, uh, where he describes Satan's ability in deceiving and in tricking us. I want to read this to you. I'll put it on the screen here. He says, I'm no genius at mathematics, but even with my limited capabilities, I could be terrific at math if I worked on it for 100 years, maybe. (laughs) If I labored at it for 1,000 years and read all the learned theories, I would be a Newton or Einstein. Or what if I had 10,000 years? Given that time, any of us could become the world's greatest philosopher or psychologist or theologian or linguist. Satan has had multiple millennia to study and master the human disciplines. And when it comes to human subversion, he is the ultimate manipulator. Knows what he's doing. And you and I are far too weak on our own to resist an enemy like that. And if you think you can resist an enemy like that, you are ripe for the picking. We're not smart enough. We're not savvy enough to stand firm. And this is why Paul gives us these instructions. In order to stand firm, in order to resist, we have to recognize our enemy. And we have to recognize his game of attack. What's he doing? He's trying to trick. He's got schemes. He's trying to subvert and to entrap human beings in lies. We have to know our enemy. We have to know his tactics. And that's why Paul explains exactly where the battle takes place in verse 12. He introduces us to the leader in verse 11, the devil, and then he explains the whole battleground, the arena for the war that we're engaged in. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, in our world today, many people believe that the physical world, that the material world is all that there is. And they live as if that is true. That this physical life is the only thing that we get. And when you die, there's nothing else. The lights simply go out because you are just a collection of cells and nothing more. They believe that nature is a closed system and there's no outside influence from a creator. And so if that's your view of the world, then of course you're going to fight over material possessions. And of course how much wealth you have and even your health is the most vital, important thing in your life and nothing comes close to that. Here, Paul is contradicting a materialist, naturalist view of the world. But what he's not saying here, he's contradicting that view of the world, but he's not saying that our struggle with sin never takes place in the physical world. Of course it does. He says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. What he means when he says that is that our struggle finds its roots and its origin beyond the physical world. And then it manifests itself in the physical world. 
There's an entire spiritual realm that you and I don't see that is influencing everything about the world around us. There's spiritual forces that are working. And so Paul, I think, would say it's the dark powers of this spiritual realm who are behind the human traditions and some of the socio-political structures that are at work in our world today. We live in a world of spiritual blindness and darkness, and this world is like that because it's currently under the sway of the wicked one. And there are people all over this planet and in our community that are under his authority and are living accordingly. And in fact, each person here used to be, if you're a believer in Christ, under his authority. I mean, Paul has described us in Ephesians chapter 2. Look back there. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. This is how you and I came into the world. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're born into this realm, and you can see here that the spiritual leader of this realm of darkness and the spiritual realities play themselves out in our physical passions and desires. And so it moves from the spiritual to the physical. And these spiritual powers are at work in every area of life to deceive and to destroy and to keep men and women in their spiritual darkness and in their chains and to keep them where chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 says that they are, that they're born into. Now here's the glorious reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have been called by God, chosen by him, and as a result of that, repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ alone, then you have new life, and you are freed from the chains, and you've been given light, and you're no longer walking in darkness. Listen to chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. If you have come to Christ We are now to walk as children of light, and we are to resist the darkness. But in order to do that, we have to recognize the enemy. We have to know where the real battle is taking place. And the real, the primary battle is not taking place at the human level. Unbelieving men and women are not the main actors in this war. The last phrase of verse 12, if you go back there, makes it clear. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when I was a kid, I loved reading about World War II. There were 
so many books in our school library and I would check them out and I would read about the tactics of war that the different countries and the generals deployed in the fight. And I thought it was fascinating. Now each of those generals that was making decisions and employing tactics, they were they had armies under the, their command and those armies were made up of individual men, soldiers who were carrying out their orders. But while the battle took place on an individual level, it's often really helpful to see the big picture. And that's what I loved to read about, to see the, the Battle of the Bulge and see the scope of that fight and how the different units were moving and the way the whole picture looked. And so let me give you a big picture of this fight here that he has described in verses 11 and 12. Let me zoom out a little bit. There are individual actors in this war that's going on, but let me zoom out a little bit and give you an overall picture of this, the spiritual war that we're engaged in. Christ has come and dealt the death blow to the head of the serpent. He did that on the cross. And at this time, currently, his gospel is going forward into the earth and rescuing men and women from the kingdom of darkness and transferring them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and love. And the final victory is coming, and it will be his. But we are living in a time right now where Paul is describing what Paul, which Paul is describing here in verse 12, where the powers of darkness are still fighting and they're still trying to deceive and they're still trying to trick people. They want people to reject Christ and to live and pursue their corrupt desires. And so that's the point in the war that you and I are at. And that's where we are as these individual soldiers on the battlefield. So what is Paul calling us to do? He's calling us to resist the enemy and to stand firm. And he recognizes that we can't do that on our, in our own strength. Christ has won the victory, and we're confident in that. And as we grow in our confidence in that, then we stand firm and we resist and we wait for our general to return or we wait for him to call us home. We have strength and power to resist when we know ourselves and when we know the enemy. And that's what Paul's describing in verse 13. He sort of summarizes verses 11 and 12, goes back to some of the same themes. Verse 13, look there. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Considering our spiritual enemy, knowing where the battle is primarily taking place in the spiritual realm and then manifesting itself in the physical realm, in the structures of the culture around us, in the influences that we endure, considering all of that, the appropriate response for the believer is to put on the whole armor of God. And we put it on so that we can stand. I mean, notice how many times in this passage he tells us to stand, right? Verse 11, put on the armor that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, take up the whole armor that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then he starts verse 14, stand therefore, right? Over and over again, this is the call for us. Endure the onslaughts that the powers of darkness are bringing our way and stand firm. 
Now, as I'm describing all of that, right, it probably seems a little abstract. Okay, what does this actually look like in the average foot soldier's daily life? I mean, how, what does spiritual warfare look like in my life? Should we see a demon behind every rustle of the trees, sort of like Martin Luther did, and think in those terms? No, I don't, I don't think that's what we should do. And as believers, there's only so much that Satan can actually do and accomplish in our lives, right? I mean, we can't lose our salvation. We can't lose our salvation if we're truly in him. There's only so much that he can actually do in our lives. He, but we can be knocked down. We can be influenced by our corrupt desires. We can be deceived. We can be hurt. But I want you to notice what Paul says right in the middle of verse 13. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And I think this is where the fight gets very practical and functional for you and I in our daily lives. We all face temptations every day, right? We face temptations to sin and temptations to doubt the benefits that we have in Christ and doubt the goodness of Christ. And so it's necessary for us to be equipped with the armor of God so that we can withstand those temptations that come to us because of our own desires and because of the way the world influences us working in tandem. All of that is true. All of that happens. But if you look what Paul says here, he tells us that we take up the armor so that we can withstand in the evil day. And I think what he's describing here is not the normal, regular course of life temptations and passions that we endure and we try to resist by the grace of God. I think what he's talking about here is times of intense spiritual struggle. It's a particularly evil day. It's a particularly challenging time. And what Paul's saying here is there are times in our lives where it's that much more difficult to trust the Lord. And it's that much harder. And circumstances make reliance on God and trust in him that much more difficult. There are times where life is no longer easy. It's no longer comfortable. There are times where the benefits of the gospel seem distant and they seem abstract like it doesn't really matter. There are times where the Bible isn't alive to us and life is challenging. And this can be all, sort of, all sorts of things, right? Maybe you and your family are facing financial struggles right now. And the pressure of those financial struggles is a form of spiritual warfare. It's hard to make ends meet and so you're anxious and you're concerned you're tempted to not trust the Lord in the midst of that, that, Paul would say, is an evil day. It's a time of intense spiritual struggle. We doubt God's goodness. It's hard. Obviously, I think everyone would say the pressure of this past week and the events that have been unfolding with the coronavirus and the response and the panic that has happened put a lot of people into a very anxious state of mind. And there is a very high level of concern. 
I mean, this whole thing has caused an incredible disruption to normal life. I was not thrilled to be spending my morning on Thursday writing an email about the coronavirus to everyone. I would, there's a lot of other ways I'd rather spend my time, and I'm sure you have very similar stories about your life, right? It's, it's tempting to get stressed and to get angry, to get frustrated, to panic. And that's what Paul's talking about here. It's a time of intense spiritual struggle. And what he would say to us is, take up the armor of God. Prepare with the armor of God so that you can resist and you can stand and you can be firm in the midst of the spiritual battle. Notice the last phrase of verse 13. And having done all to stand firm. When he says having done all, he's not saying that you take your stand through amassing good deeds and exceptional willpower. He's not reverting to saying that it's all dependent on you. Having done all means that you and I recognize our spiritual benefits that are available to us through Christ. And we recognize those benefits by faith, and that is for the purpose of standing in the midst of the battle. And that's what actually gives us the strength to be able to stand in the battle. And so when Paul says here, having done all, really what he's talking about is spiritual preparation. Being spiritually prepared for the evil days, for the trying circumstances that will enter all of our lives at one point or another, and maybe on a regular basis. Now, I told you last week that I am not equipped I am not prepared for a physical altercation. I told you about my one punch that I've thrown and landed successfully when I was in fourth grade. And at this point in my life, I am not ready for a fight. I've never taken martial arts classes, no self-defense you know, classes. I do not know what to do. And, and so that makes me unprepared. But that's only part of my problem. Most of you know that Marcel, Pastor Marcel, was a high school teacher for a number of years, for over a decade, before he moved here to Michigan. And there was was a day where he and I were talking about the fights that he's seen in his school in Virginia that would happen from time to time among high school students. And if any of you are high school teachers, I'm sure you can affirm that this is true. But we were talking about these inevitable fights that kids would get in, and we were laughing about how hilarious it is that there'd be two dudes who, big dudes, and they're all big and bad, and they're getting ready for this fight, and they, you know, they start throwing punches, and in like five seconds, they are exhausted, <laughs> and they're gasping for breath because they're not prepared. They don't, they're not ready to actually enter into a physical altercation. That would be me. My, my adrenaline would get rolling, and I, I maybe throw one punch, and in like four and a half seconds, I would be on the floor, out of breath, and unable to, to do anything in that fight, right? And I, I really, I think that's most of us when it comes to difficult circumstances. We're not ready. We're not prepared. And so there's a burst of adrenaline maybe, and then we're out of We're out of options. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to think. We don't know how to handle ourselves. We haven't taken up the armor of God, and we're not prepared. 
We haven't really put on the armor that God provides for us. And that's what's so amazing, I think, here and encouraging about this passage is that it's not our armor. It's God's armor, and he provides it, and he gives it, and he gives it freely to us. It is accessible to us by faith, and our role is to prepare for the evil day by cultivating our faith in our union with him. So what does that preparation look like, practically speaking? I mean, if you're preparing for a physical fight, you've got to be and exercising, making sure you can not lose your breath after just a few seconds. You've got to get stronger. You've got to know the tactics that you're going into the fight with. And it's very similar in a lot of ways to our spiritual preparation for standing and resisting. I mean, there's nothing mystical about this, right? There's nothing unclear about this. Cultivate the means of grace that God has provided. He's given us these things. Study his word. Read and study his word. Be in the scriptures. Listen, if you have extra time over the next few weeks, a little bit of isolation time, use that time not by going on social media and reading all the latest articles from all the experts who are out there. Use that time by going into the scriptures And read chunks of God's word. Spend time in prayer. Go to him. Those are the means of grace. Fellowship with other believers. Come to church as you're able. And as life gets back to normal. Know the gospel. I mean, all those benefits flow to us because of the work of Christ in the gospel. And so know the details of the gospel. Know the doctrines of Christ and of soteriology, justification by faith alone. Know your enemy. Learn to recognize the lies of the enemy and learn to believe the the promises of the gospel that counteract those lies. And then you'll see next week that part of this is to appropriate the specific pieces of the armor. That's what he explains to us in verses 14 through 17. We're going to look there next week. Consistent spiritual preparation leads to faith, and it leads to endurance. It leads to endurance in the midst of our spiritual battles that we will face. And that's what Paul's calling us to. Recognize and resist our enemy through the gifts that God provides through his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this passage and we're thankful for the gifts that you have given to us by your grace. We're so thankful for the work of Christ. What a beautiful reality that our sins have been dealt with on the cross. They have been paid for on our behalf that we are forgiven, that we have been united with you, Lord Jesus, and have received the righteousness that you possess. And God, when you look at us, you see perfect and complete righteousness. And then you are working that righteousness in us, and we are growing in obedience and sanctification as a result of our justification, being declared righteous in you. And so we're so thankful for those truths. Help us to know those realities 
to think about them, to pray through them, and to believe them so that we're ready to resist and to withstand the assault of the lies and the schemes of the devil and his spiritual forces. Thank you that we are protected by you and we are safe in you, Lord Jesus, and we love you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.